0: Alrighty, who's ready for episode number four in the that gut feeling, doing it for the kids podcast. I know I'm super excited about this one. This one is for all the nerds out there. If you're not a nerd, it's okay. It's still quite easy to understand. Today I'm talking to Dilia McCabe. Now Dilia, uh, she's like an idol of mine, really. When I uh, before I started my accounting, I actually started studying psychology. Uh, silly me, thought there wasn't a calling for it out in the bush. So I decided to ditch that study accounting. And then since finishing my accounting, I've, I've just had this calling to do neuroscience and Dilia has dipped her toes into both of those. So I really, really enjoy chatting to her. I, I enjoy chatting to her every time that we chat. We've, we've caught up a few times now and she's just so incredibly intelligent and the whole reason that she shifted from psychology into the nutritional neuroscience was because she realized through study research uh, that no amount of talking can get you out of some situations if the nutritional side of things isn't in check so that's why Delia shifted from her original psychology background to now the nutritional neuroscience. Uh, she's written two books, she's been featured in a lot of major publications She specializes in supporting behavioral changes and stress resilient with corporates and she brings a whole host of knowledge but also experience. Uh, You know, she too is a mum and her son had his own challenges so she has some tips and tricks in here that you don't want to miss. Let's get into it. Welcome to That Gut Feeling, a weekly interview podcast that explores just how powerful our bodies are by design and how through taking a holistic approach to our gut health, we can not only drastically change our own health, but the health of those that we love, especially our babies. Hear incredible stories of transformations from everyday people like you and I and also from a range of health professionals as we educate and inspire parents to take charge of their family's health and keep on doing it for the (laughs) kids.
1: Delia, I was really excited uh, when I listen to your story and uh so much so that we were actually meant to catch up at another point to discuss whether or not we'd be a good fit for one another and i'd actually taken it into my own hands to decide that you were in fact a good fit for me and we didn't really necessarily need that appointment but here you are now would you mind sharing with our listeners uh how you where you've come from and where you are now and what it is that you're doing
2: well to cut a long story short, like you, I wanted to be a psychologist and I went down that path. But, you know, as fate would have it, uh, things change. And it changed just because of one question. So I had this group of really smart school kids that were really battling to do well at school. These were kids that should have been getting A pluses and they were failing. And I decided to find out what the psychological variables were related to this underachievement. So I had my experimental group, those are the kids doing poorly but smart, and I had my control group, the smart kids who were doing well, and I decided to just ask them one question because I had a little bit of space on one of the questionnaires that I developed. And the question was, what is your favorite food? And that's such a simple question, and it changed my whole destiny because every one of the children in my experimental group, that's the really smart kids who were doing poorly, every one of those kids loved junk food. And in the other group, the group that was smart and doing well, they liked Sunday roast and, you know, baked potatoes and veggies and so on. They didn't love junk food. And I was like, wow, very seldom in research do you find such a clear distinction. But I had no real problem because then I couldn't write it up in my master's thesis because that wasn't what my protocol was. My protocol was looking at, at the psychological variables related to the underachievement. So then I was stuck and I thought, well, what am I going to do? And so fate had stepped in a second time because I was pregnant with my first child and I was just about to give birth to her. And I thought, well, it's stupid for me to just start in a, you know, the, the, the psychotherapy field right now. Let me take a little bit of time and investigate what this all means about the food. So you can see me there, heavily pregnant, going to the university, digging on the shelves, you know, speaking to the librarians, where were these journal articles? And, you know, this was before the internet. So I'm really mm-hmm. dating myself now <laughs> because you know, I couldn't just Google it. I had to go and search and, and figure out what on earth this thing was about brain function and nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so I stumbled across a few people who were tentatively dipping their toes into this fascinating field. And I thought, well, I really need to immerse myself in this. And 25 years later, you know, my daughter's now 25 and I never became a, a psychotherapist. I just couldn't endure talking to people about their trauma when I wanted to say to them, hey, what did you have for breakfast? Yeah. So it shifted my entire way of thinking. So in a nutshell, that's what happened, Tony.
1: Wow. That is so interesting. And, you know, I, I see it a lot, even with my own boy. I notice... Uh, my eldest, that is. I notice that food affects his mood and his behaviour like on a whole nother level. It's, it really is intense, isn't it?
2: It really is intense, and I think one of the challenges we've had as as researchers is it's not ethical to deprive people of nutrients to be able to see what the effects are. Mm. So when we do research, we can't do the golden standard, you know, research of double-blind, placebo-controlled. Multi center studies. We can't do that. It's not ethical. So we have to look at observational studies. We have to look at what happens to people if they've eaten a certain food or certain food patterns over long periods of time. And so there are a lot of other variables that come into play in those kinds of studies. So it's very difficult to say, you know, cause and effect, but anybody that's a mum or a dad and they look at their kids and they've been to a birthday party and they're high on colors and flavors and sugar, Mm. they'll know that those children behave differently and they sleep differently and they feel Mm. differently. So those are what we call case studies. And we are all masters of that if we could be parents.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually, I was talking to a girlfriend the other day and she was uh, telling me about the fact that she just has absolutely horrendous sleep Uh, and on top of that she's going to the cupboard and she's pulling out you know all of the foods that she shouldn't be uh, cakes biscuits those kinds of things Uh, on top of that she's having a fair bit of anxiety as well and she said to me you know I don't know whether it's it you know it's the whole chicken and egg situation where she doesn't know what comes first, whether it's the food that she's eating that's throwing everything out, or is it because she's stressed out of her brain um, and not sleeping? Do you have any kind of take on, on that at all?
2: Yeah, look, this is a very interesting discussion and an interesting dilemma. And I suppose I shouldn't use the word interesting, I should say really challenging obstacle, because there are a number of different factors that feed into the sleep challenge. So let's start with the first one. Let's just talk about neurotransmitters and hormones. And once we've got that under the belt, we can move on to the next stage. So one of the things that researchers, long ago researchers used to believe that women were a little bit funny in the head because we would behave erratically at certain times of the month. And, you know, you find an insensitive man that will say that today still. He'll say, oh, well, it must be that time of the month. And, of course, we want to strangle them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there is, as they say, where there is smoke, there's fire. And there is really truth in this. And I'll tell you why. And it's not bad and it's 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 not a disaster. In fact, many times there is research to show that women are much more creative at that time of the month. So this is how it works. We have hormones that fluctuate regularly during the month. And these hormones are primarily estrogen and progesterone. Now, men don't have that because they don't have cycles. So we have these hormones that fluctuate. And it's nature's way of making sure that we can procreate. The challenge is that those hormones, estrogen and progesterone, are linked to neurotransmitters. So when our estrogen peaks and troughs, it impacts serotonin. So serotonin also peaks and troughs. Now serotonin is a very important neurotransmitter and most people know it's related to sleep, it helps us feel safe and secure, it helps us feel calm and it helps helps us feel as if everything's under control. The thing about serotonin that most people don't know is that serotonin also codes for anxiety. So we have some serotonin receptors that code for calming us down and we have some serotonin receptors that come for increasing our anxiety. And we don't know how these necessarily feature in our own lives because they are genetic factors that impact serotonin synthesis and prevalence of these receptors. So that's the one side of the conversation, how estrogen and serotonin are impacted. Now progesterone and GABA or gamma-aminobutyric acid are the two that are linked together. Now GABA is a neurotransmitter that helps us feel calm, it helps us feel relaxed, it helps us feel in control. And we need both serotonin and GABA in varying quantities to be able to help us feel as if we're in control and as if life life is, life is manageable. And of course, also to give us a bit of an up sometimes to be anxious about the things that we should be anxious about. So it's a beautiful balancing act. And these hormones and these neurotransmitters work in concert. The challenge is that when our hormones are out of sync, which happens when we're stressed, this naturally directly impacts impacts serotonin synthesis and progesterone, sorry, GABA synthesis. And then this goes out of whack. And so we find ourselves feeling very emotional. We find ourselves feeling like attacking that box of chocolates with a vengeance and finishing it (laughs) off in five minutes because serotonin is related to appetite regulation and satiation. So we we then see that the hormones are directly related to what we have the desire to eat. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, With the way we live in this world today, which is really a complex world that we've created for ourselves, we've increased our stress levels significantly and stress impacts both the hormones and their synthesis and the neurotransmitters separately, and then you combine them with stress and you have what you call a perfect storm. So that's the first part of the conversation. If your client's hormones are unbalanced, it's directly going to impact serotonin and and GABA, and that will immediately affect her sleep and her appetite. Mm -hmm. Now we move on to the second stage about the gut. Now we'll talk about the gut in more detail later, but the thing about the gut, which is important to keep in mind is that 80% plus of serotonin is produced in the gut. Now, we call this peripheral serotonin. This is different to the serotonin that's produced in the brain. If the gut is not functioning optimally for a number of reasons, which we will get back to, then serotonin synthesis is impacted. So once again, your client could just because of gut challenges be having a problem with serotonin synthesis, which is then impacting her sleep because serotonin is the foundation of melatonin. So that's that side of it. When we look at how this all works together, we know without a shadow of a doubt that women experience stress differently to men. Mm. So if your client is stressed, apart from the hormone issues, if we can we can't really put them apart, but let's just put them aside for argument's sake. If she's very stressed at the moment, this means that the part of her brain that regulates emotion, which is the limbic system, is much more active because she's a woman versus the case if, if she was a man. So we know that the limbic system becomes very activated and that of course is related to mood, it's related to emotional regulation, it's related to stress response, it's related to fear, excitement, and a whole lot of other things. So stress will also be impacting her and negatively affecting the way she craves food, the way she sleeps. So those are factors that we have to take into account and look at them. And you know, as you said, is it the chicken and the egg? So it's really impossible to tease it apart. Because mm-hmm. we can't say to her, okay, you you have to be without hormones for a while so we can see <laughs> if it's just your gut because it doesn't work that way, yeah so we have it's to then look at the easiest and fastest way it's 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 kind of like a cruel twist of fate because the good good news is if you change one thing, it can have a positive negative effect, but the other other side is if you change one thing negatively, it can have the opposite. Mm. So the first thing for her to do, and the easiest thing for her to do which may not feel easy because she's craving those chocolates and, and the, and you know, the, those biscuits, she should definitely look at eating the kinds of food that's going to change her gut bacteria, because that's the second thing that we need to discuss the gut bacteria in relation to serotonin synthesis. And then of course the, the, the domino effect onto neurotransmitters. So that's a start for your client in relation to how everything fits together. And I mean, you may not want to explain that all to her, but at least Mm. the listeners and the viewers can get an idea. This is a complex issue. It's complex because of the interaction and the relationship between the neurotransmitters and the hormones and that this is going on continuously. And this is why, you know, PMT, I put a video up the other day on Facebook and I, I spoke about a comedian Roseanne Barr, and she said PNT allows her to be who she really is. And I had to laugh at that because, you know, when women are experiencing a hormonal shift or a high or a low, they feel like everything that they say is 100% true and (laughs) they need to say it. And (laughs) we can all relate to that. Yes, But that's just because our brain is good at, at monitoring us during that time and helping us to just maybe not say the thing that we want to say.
1: I, um I need a bit of that filter in my life a little bit more often, I think, or oh, my husband probably thinks that more than what I do, but <laughs> okay. So when, you know, reaching for the, those chocolates and those biscuits and, and everything else, they're going to throw out the gut microbiome as well. And it's going to have that vicious cycle then isn't it because then you've got what's going on in the brain i'm certainly no expert maybe you can elaborate on this for us um the whole addiction to sugar and everything else that goes with it too so it's it's a really hard cycle to break isn't it i know um personally for myself once i had both of my boys and i talk about this quite openly on both of my social media accounts after i had both my boys and i'm now that you're saying all this about hormones i was always thinking it was the lack of sleep that was driving the sugar cravings but again perfect storm um all of the uh, antibiotics that i was on because i had emergency caesarean so that would have been throwing things out the hormones associated with childbirth uh, the lack of sleep due to getting up to bub in the middle of the night and you know, my body obviously needing that, that energy hit. So I was going to, I, I've always been really good with my willpower and and not going down that road. You know, I have treats every now and then for sure. But it was like, I had no control on what was going on. I'd be reaching for the chocolates and going, no, Tony, no, Tony, no, Tony, lifting it to my mouth. No, Tony, put the chocolate down and in <laughs> it would go.
2: Look, it's a huge challenge. And I think that Part of the problem is that it is the chicken and egg. You know, where do you start? Because sleep impacts hormonal synthesis. It impacts neurotransmitter synthesis and functioning. And then the lack of sleep makes you crave more food because you have a lack of energy. So we do have this vicious cycle that, you know, that goes on and on. And then, of course, we have the feeling that, you know, we're actually actually having a tough time and we don't want to deprive ourselves. And that's a very psychological um, angle to the whole thing, because we feel like we're exhausted. We feel like we're not having many treats. We feel like our children are waking us up all night. And so we feel, what's one more chocolate actually going to do? Nothing. You know, and a couple of months later, we wake up and we realize it actually did a lot that all landed on our thighs or whatever, you know, and affects, affects our sleep. So there are a number of ramifications to this this, this perfect storm, as, we, as we're calling it. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is that the gut is very, very sensitive, both to external environment. So that's the stress that we're experiencing and to the food that we're consuming. So a really simple thing to do is to just make sure that the food you eat is of a very high quality. And that doesn't mean that you can't eat chocolate. But if you're going to eat chocolate, eat organic chocolate, 70% plus, and you know, dip that melted chocolate into pieces of ripe pear, for example, oh, so that yeah. you're getting some great nutrients with that treat. Because otherwise, that feeling of deprivation really drives us. And this is where... I realized that my psychology training wasn't really such a waste because I can put on my psychology hat and I can say, look, it's not that easy to change habits, but if we replace them with something really yummy and delicious, then it becomes a lot simpler. Then it's not just a matter of I'm depriving myself and I have to eat a carrot stick. You know, that's not the aim of the exercise. We can deal with the psychology of creating a new habit, which is actually not that hard when you focus on pleasure. And then in the same breath, we're dealing with building a new neural pathway. And in the same breath, we, we're creating a foundation for for shifting our thinking about food. And in the same breath, we're creating or we're providing the nutrients, which is allowing our brain to function more efficiently, which means it'll make those neurotransmitters with greater ease and mm-hmm. support our gut health. Mm-hmm. Because when our gut health becomes out of sync, and I think a lot of people have become very... Um, aware of the fact now, because the media speaks a lot more about gut health and brain health and how they're intimately interlinked. The challenge is that most people don't understand how this happens. They just know that it does. Mm. And a very simple example is explaining to people that they are, we're supposed to have 4,000 different kinds of gut bacteria, firstly. And most of us do not have any close to that. However, most people today, because of processed food, and because of high stress levels, have more of a gut bacteria that is super, super efficient at extracting calories. Now, this is good news if we don't have too many of them because we do need to extract calories, otherwise we have no energy to function. Mm. But if we have more of those than the ones that are related to lean bodies that aren't that efficient, we end up craving firstly the foods that, that feed those highly efficient calorie extracting bacteria And secondly, more of them proliferate so that our gut lining becomes impacted. And this is really where the secret is. Mm -hmm. When gut lining is impacted, and you know this, Tony, because of the research that you've done, when the gut lining is impacted, those very, very sophisticated and sensitive cells become damaged and they become very inefficient at stopping food particles and other toxins from entering the bloodstream. And then once they've entered the bloodstream, we have this terrible, storm of inflammation that happens and those inflammatory compounds travel all the way to the brain. And this is where the challenge comes in. The blood brain barrier is just as sensitive as the gut barrier the gut lining to damage from inflammatory compounds. So it becomes damaged, it opens up and then those toxic compounds are allowed into the brain. And that's how the gut and the brain are intimately linked. Mm -hmm. So the first thing to do is to ensure that you start producing or start consuming the kinds of foods that allow the good bacteria to proliferate because they make sure that they produce tiny compounds that keep that gut lining really strong, heal it, keep it strong and provide a good mucosal lining to that, to mm-hmm. the gut so that it is very capable of keeping the bad compounds and, and not properly digested food particles from entering the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. It sounds like such a long (laughs) (laughs) comment that I made.
1: (laughs) No, I appreciate that. And can I just get your take on, so, um, you know, when I have this conversation with my husband, for example, um, about, so my eldest has eczema, has had eczema in the past. We've managed to do some things to help improve his gut health. And, you know, over time, every now and then that all slips and he might have like a, a breakout or whatnot. And I explained to him about the compromise in the gut lining and, and leaky gut and all of that. And um, I explain about the elimination diet and how it's important to remove foods that are harming and replenish with what is healing. And, um, and, and that's why foods that may not necessarily have been a problem for people in the past are now um, not so well tolerated isn't it is because of that wearing down of that gut lining
2: absolutely that's why with age food intolerance has become more of a challenge and also when children go into puberty because when they step into puberty two things happen they change their diet because they're associating more with their friends and the second thing that happens is that a lot of the, the nutrients in the body are now driven towards hormone synthesis. Mm. And so those, hormo- those nutrients are no longer available for all the things that they need to do, including protecting gut lining. So there are definitely, that is definitely the case that we become a lot more susceptible because of gut lining integrity breakdown. And the, the primary aim of the exercise is therefore to heal the gut with the kinds mm. of foods that allow the, the lining to then recuperate and replenish itself. Mm -hmm. and it isn't as hard as people think because there's research to show that in as little as four days good bacteria can start proliferating again and that's really good for people to know because four days is really not a long time at all and just with a few tweaks and a few changes they can make those changes happen and you know the changes are long reaching it's not just gut health it's it's our weight it's our desire for for processed foods. It's our brain health. A whole lot of very positive spin-off effects happen when we just change the food that we're consuming for gut Mm -hmm. health.
1: Okay. So with a lot of people that I come into contact with, these changes, um, even if they may just sound small, can sometimes be quite overwhelming and and quite um, challenging, I suppose. And as a psychologist, you would understand that as Humans, we don't, we aren't so very accepting of change, are we? How do you, is, let me articulate this correctly. So when you're working with someone, do you first focus on um, getting them to embrace the change? Do you have to work on changing behavioural patterns first? Do you change the food first and then the rest follows? Like what is, what have you noticed in your work?
2: Well, the first thing that one needs to keep in mind is to not allow deprivation to, to step in at all, because the minute you feel deprived, you then feel that, you know, life is tough and then you get sorry for yourself and then you think it's not really fair and so on and so forth. And we used to say in our family, then you start suffering from plum, that's poor little old me, and we don't want anyone to experience that. So it definitely makes sense to never suffer from deprivation. So I speak about replacement foods. Mm-hmm. Instead of consuming that, you're going to consume this. It may taste a little bit different, but you're not cutting it out entirely. So, for example, and you will probably know this with working with clients with gluten-free um, food. The minute you say to them you can't eat bread anymore, they become hysterical because they love bread, <laughs>
1: yes. and it's
2: probably the, one of the main reasons they have got a problem
1: because like, <laughs> That's what I was talking not. about before. <laughs>
2: So then, of course, one has to address that issue and say, well, look, we're not going to take bread away. We're going to just give you a different kind of bread and it tastes really good. It doesn't taste exactly the same. But after a couple of days, it's going to be fine. And you don't make too many changes at at once. That's the second thing. Because the minute you make too many changes, that becomes overwhelming. And as you said, you know, we don't like to change our patterns of behavior. So definitely no deprivation, firstly. Secondly, just replacement with as simple as and as, as similar as possible and thirdly, not too many changes at once, because mm-hmm. the minute you do that, you know, people just go, no, 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 this is too much. And th- sometimes they say to themselves, "It's not actually so bad. The bloating and the belly ache and the weight gain is not so bad. I'd prefer to eat cake." So we <laughs> need to help them to 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 build a new neural pathway without feeling as if it's too hard. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And the you mentioned you touched on it a little bit earlier about the brain building new pathways. And that would come into play once you make these changes too, wouldn't it? Because the, the brain's so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The neuroplasticity? neuroplasticity. Yes, that's yeah.
2: right. <laughs> would you mind? The brain is neuroplastic. <laughs> that, that's the right word. And, and neuroplasticity is a wonderful thing, but there's a dark side to neuroplasticity. If you start a bad habit, it just as easily becomes entrenched in the brain as when you start a good habit. Mm -hmm. and the other thing about neuroplasticity that most people don't realize is you're not overriding the bad habit with a new one you're forming a new one so the bad habit will always be there so for example when you talk to people that have been that have smoked for for decades and they stop smoking and they stay away from environments where smoke is you know is 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 smelt and, and they see people smoking and then they suddenly come to that environment again they get the desire to pick up a cigarette and smoke mm-hmm. it as if it was yesterday because yeah. that neural pathway is still lurking there. It hasn't entirely disappeared and will never ever disappear in fact. So we have to create new neural pathways. But the way to make them entrenched is as I said, just make sure it's not a matter of deprivation because the minute a person feel, feels deprived, it's so easy for them to, to step back into the old neural pathway because it's waiting there with open arms yeah. to say, yeah, 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 you know, come along. Let's eat that chocolate together again. Yeah. So we just need to make sure that we we create a new one with as much simplicity and ease as possible Mm. so that it can become entrenched over time. And make it enjoyable as as well.
1: Does that matter? Absolutely, It has to be a positive.
2: Absolutely. You know, that's why I mentioned the dark chocolate. Mm. When people think that they can't eat chocolate or coffee anymore, they get that terrible feeling of my life is ending. And so I like to explain to them how you can still do those things. but, But with more intelligence behind it let's do it wisely so that we're not undermining our health and so that we're still enjoying you know having pleasure and you know you spoke about how people don't like to change their bad habits my son was was diagnosed with gluten insensitivity when he was five years old five or six i can't remember he's 22 now And it was a really sobering experience for us because he was a very good natured, happy child. And we didn't eat a lot of bread, but when he did, he became cranky and irritable and aggressive. And so I took him for tests and this is what came out. And I sat down and I explained it to him and he was really young. And I said, I'll make sure that you never deprived ever. I'll make sure that whatever I make for you will be delicious and nobody else will look at you and say, Oh, that looks odd and horrible. And we actually had, had friends in our neighborhood who would come to our house, especially for the gluten-free cake that I used to make Matthew and all the other treats, because that's how I, I promised him that there would be no deprivation involved. Mm. And so that is what's happened over the years. And today he will read labels so carefully. Yeah. He knows gluten doesn't. And one day I asked him about it. And he said, you know, mom, I experience a feeling of such crankiness and such irritability. If I do happen to eat something that's got gluten in it, if someone gives something to him or he's not vigilant, which he normally is, he says, I know then that it's the food because he knows that his temperament isn't that way inclined. So one of the secrets really is to make sure that there's no deprivation involved. And that's one of the reasons I started my recipe book. I started keeping a list Mm -hmm. because then I had to give the mums of my son's friends, the recipes because those kids wanted to eat those foods. So it was kind of like a very positive spin-on effect, which started out as something really challenging for him.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, good on you for going to those lengths for your baby. That's a a big reason why I have started this podcast. In fact, is just so that I can share stories like yours and, um, your knowledge is just so incredible Like, there's so many people out there that can benefit from all of this information. So I thank you very much for that. Now, would you mind sharing with our listeners, um, some tips and tricks that you have found or that you recommend for them to try in, in healing their gut?
2: Absolutely, Tony. And it's really a delight to be able to share this because I really do believe that the ramifications are really long-term for both the the mums and the whole family and the children, because the way our children develop their eating habits actually persists for a lifetime. You know, they may change a little bit, but they always come back to the way you taught them. And of course, we're developing a brain in a very vulnerable and um, specific moment in time that we don't get a chance to do again because they are windows of opportunity that aren't repeated. So there are a number of really positive spin-on effects when we start doing this. So the first piece of advice that I'd like to give mums and try to get them to get their children to embrace is to chew their food. And Mm. this sounds so boring and it sounds so... You know, like everybody knows
1: we should chew our food. But And listen to this podcast to... for this long to hear to chew my food.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And for goodness sake, can't you tell us something else? I'm going to give the most boring one first, and that is chew our food. And so I'm what I'm trying to get people to understand is that they need to eat food that requires chewing. Because if we eat highly processed foods, you know, you chew it twice, it becomes mush and you swallow it. And that obviously doesn't encourage gut integrity and gut health and it also doesn't encourage the, the release of the enzymes that are required to enhance digestion. So choose food that does require chewing, like carrot sticks, like cucumber, like you know, a hard apple for children that can chew that. Get get them to dip it into a tahini and maple syrup mixture. And they've got to dip it in and they lick it off and they chew it and they're activating their jaw muscles, which also impact tooth development and jaw development and growth. So there's a whole lot of very positive spin-on effects with chewing well. There's even some research to suggest that when we chew, we stimulate blood supply to the brain. So that's another angle that chewing chewing encompasses. So make sure we eat food that requires chewing. And one of the challenges with people living on smoothies is that when they live on a smoothie, all they do is plug the nutrients down. And the smoothie mm. can be full of really good things and great nutrients and be very nutrient-dense, but you're not getting the, the maximum benefit or the optimal benefit of those nutrients if you're not chewing. So I just suggest people make a great smoothie and stir into it things that need chewing, like almonds, you know, like maybe some walnuts, like a chopped up apple or a diced up orange mm. or some kiwi fruit just so that each mouthful
1: requires chewing. So that's I've the got first. something to add to that, if you don't mind. So I do up smoothie bowls. So it's I chuck in a heap of ice so it's really nice, thick consistency. And then I crush up some nuts and um, whatever else I'm feeling like that day just to give it that crunch at the end of it. I can't drink anything that has anything like seeds or crunch to it. But if I'm using a spoon, as weird as it sounds, yeah, it's really, really good. So that's a, a good tip there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we need to incorporate this into our eating habits because really it makes a huge difference. And what you said is exactly spot on. Smoothie bowls are the way to go. Mm. The second point will sound counterintuitive. And I don't have, I know that people that manufacture probiotics are going to be saying, oh, no, you can't be saying that. But the truth of the matter is that probiotics are kind of like a plaster. So when people are consuming probiotics, they're giving themselves the bacteria just for the time that the bacteria can survive as a stopgap. So I suggest that people eat prebiotic foods. So mm-hmm. these are the kinds of foods that allow bacteria to proliferate the ones we want to proliferate. So then you don't have to buy probiotics and use probiotics. You may do that for a period of time while you're trying to heal your gut and you also also shifting your diet, but you don't have to do it forever because mm-hmm. the prebiotic foods will naturally be producing the kinds of fiber and the kinds of nutrients that the good bacteria love and they will start thriving and automatically appetite is enhanced. Belly bloat goes down. Transit time, which we can chat about in a moment, will also improve. So a whole lot of very positive spin-on effects happen when you start eating prebiotics versus taking a probiotic. Mm-hmm. Should I discuss transit time for a second? Sure. That's how, how long it takes for us to eat the food before it le- before the waste product leaves our body. Okay. Yeah. Now, most people don't want to talk about transit time, but I think that on this podcast where your focus is on gut health, mm-hmm. I think it's allowed Tony. Okay. So let's talk about transit time. Two things about transit time. Firstly, Women have a longer transit time than men generally. Okay. So that is related to estrogen and serotonin relationships. So that's the first thing. The second thing about transit time is that anything from 12 to 16, 17 hours is the optimal time for food to move from your mouth out in waste form. That's Mm -hmm. the optimal time. Anything over 20 hours means that it's in there for too long when it starts putrefying and anything shorter than 12 hours means that it's moving through too quickly Mm -hmm. and the food is not being absorbed optimally because it's not being able to have contact with the gut gut lining for long enough. So this is a really complex discussion and topic, but it's Mm -hmm. important to mention it because Transit time definitely influences our overall health and well being significantly. So, the next question that people normally ask me, and I'll preempt you, mm-hmm. is how do I know what my transit time is? And there's a magical test to find out what that is. Consume one tablespoon of white sesame seeds in a little glass of water. Okay. Swallow it and keep checking and you'll figure out what your transit time is. Okay. And that will give you a really good idea as to whether your gut health is optimal or not. And then you'll know that you can tweak it,
1: and that's a trick. Okay, there you go. So if someone does have a longer transit time or a shorter transit time, would you just then go back to recommending them eating the, the good prebiotic foods or would you then be, you know, sort of saying maybe it's time to consult a professional? What would be your advice to those people?
2: Well, the first thing that is, if, if your transit time is too long, then that means you don't have enough fiber in your gut or not enough water. So that's the first thing to up. And when you up the, the amount of fiber you're consuming, you naturally will up the prebiotics. If you're eating real food, then mm-hmm. your prebiotics will, will be up. If your transit time is too short, it may mean that you're consuming too much fiber, which would be very, very unusual in our society. But would occur if people are following an extreme diet where maybe they're eating only raw food and their gut integrity is compromised. And so mm-hmm. you would try some shifts and changes according to those two areas and mm-hmm. if they don't improve, then it would be time for them to go and see a specialist. Because maybe they have some kind of bigger challenge that is causing this, the transit time to be what it is. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely shifts that people can make first before they move on to the next step.
1: Okay.
2: Um, it's also interesting to know that women also suffer from irritable bowel syndrome more than men. So we know that's related to the way they respond to stress, which is different to the way men respond, and also related to the serotonin, estrogen, and progesterone GABA interactions. So, you know, when women complain about having challenges with their belly, it is definitely much more prevalent among women than it is among
1: men. I didn't know that. Actually, there was one more thing that um, I heard you say on a podcast the other day, I wanted to pick your brain about that. And it's going back to what we were talking about before about habits and and forming habits. And you see a lot of um, advice online about, is it 21 days to break a habit? And you said that that's not actually true.
2: No, it isn't. It's actually interesting because that, that habit myth evolved because there was a a plastic surgeon who realized when he assessed his patients that it took them 21 days to get used to their new faces and so he mentioned this to some people in passing and some of those people being you know lifestyle gurus very famous ones took it on board as as if that meant that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. And it wasn't at all related to a habit formation. It was just related to um, a perception of one's own being. It wasn't related to a new habit. So when they've done more robust research, they now know that it takes 60 plus days to -hmm. create a new habit. So people just need to keep that in mind. And if after 21 days, they don't feel like, you know, that habit is entrenched already, don't feel bad, just add a bit more dark chocolate and continue
1: until you get to 60 plus days. <laughs> I love that. Now, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? And um, I'd love to hear more about these books that you've written and um, the recipe books sound pretty interesting.
2: With pleasure, Tony. But before I do that, I want to tell you about the last thing, number three. Oh, that I want sorry. The, the viewers and the listeners to <laughs> do. No, no, that's fine. We've had such an interesting conversation and we've discussed so many things. But the last one, interestingly, is about sleep. Okay. Now, you know, we kind of like started with sleep where your, where your client was really battling with sleep and we discussed all the different you know, scenarios related to that. One of the things that happens, which is really a catch-22, is when our sleep is compromised, we have an over-proliferation of the bad bacteria that drive processed food consumption and that drive high calorie retention. So it is important to deal with the sleep issue as well as the gut food issue at the same time. So interestingly, the research that pointed this out, they first did this with rats. And then they thought, wow, this is so interesting. Even just after one night of compromised sleep, these poor rats were battling in terms of gut bacteria and, you know, the ratio. Then they did it in an observational study with people who were suffering from jet lag. And even one night of compromised sleep affected the gut bacteria balance. So we know that if this continues for a long period of time, then people will immediately start feeling, oh my goodness, something's wrong. What am I going to do? So managing sleep is extremely, extremely important. And one of the ways to kind of like kickstart that is through consuming foods with more magnesium in them. And that's Mm -hmm. dark green leafy veg, a lot of um, good prebiotics in them, a lot of good essential fats in them and also a lot of fiber in them and magnesium. So that's something to do in relation to sleep, which also helps the gut. So that kind of like, you know, deal with one issue or deal with two issues with with, with one strategy. So that's really important. So mothers that wait for the house to be quiet at night so that they can actually sense being alone and enjoying the the silence need to keep in mind that they should also consider going to sleep earlier Mm. because... That sleep is what their bodies need to heal, and what they need to be able to keep their gut bacteria working optimally. Absolutely. So that was point number
1: three. Yeah, and you know I mentioned before about being able to see the link between the food that and what it does for my son's behavior, but sleep is another big one. And I think that's with any child, you know, they get to the end of the day, they haven't had their, their nap and, you know, the whole witching hour thing, or, uh, you know, they just have little tolerance for anything. They get emotional, you know, and, and that's a big thing, but I notice it even in myself, if I, I haven't, if I've had a late night or I've had a couple of nights where the, um, my littlest has had me up in the middle of the night to put him back off to sleep. You know, I notice it in my own moods and um, yeah, it's just so essential, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And it's really important for parents to deal with sleep issues with their children because the reason the, the developing brain requires so much sleep is because it's growing at such a rapid pace. So when the child doesn't sleep for the amount of time that they should be sleeping, it actually impacts cognitive development, mm. which means that it'll compromise their intellectual development, which is a challenge. So, and we know this because the developing brain has a very high percentage of melatonin in it, much higher in the adult brain, for this very reason to prompt the child to sleep more because the brain is growing. And as I said earlier, you know, which is another conversation entirely. Those windows of development, you can't, you know, hit replay for them. Yeah. Once those windows of development are passed, the child's brain can no longer go back to, you know, to recapture that, those moments of development. So it's extremely important to deal with, with um, sleep challenges. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that the diet is very, very high in good B vitamins from food and once again, magnesium. Mm -hmm. because B6 and magnesium are very important for serotonin synthesis and a whole lot of other things which support children sleeping well. So one of the things that I suggest mothers do is put their children in the bath with a whole lot of magnesium flakes and let them play with their rubber ducks and all the things that they're playing with because magnesium is then absorbed absorbed transdermally. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to go via the gut, and it gets into the bloodstream really efficiently and effectively, and the children should sleep really well because of that.
1: That's a wonderful tip. Uh, and on that as well, is there any merit in the whole no sugar after a certain time in the day? I have a go- had a girlfriend tell me once not to give your children um, sugar after I think it was lunchtime and they'll sleep better that way.
2: Well, once again, this is a complex conversation, but, you know, it's like saying, well, have a little bit of cocaine early in the morning, but when you want it late in the day, don't have any. (laughs) That's not how you break a bad habit. You know, children's taste buds have to change. And I don't know any child that will be okay with eating lollies at 10 o'clock, and then at 3 o'clock you go, no, no, no more lollies. Mm -hmm. They don't Mm -hmm. really understand that concept. So what I would suggest parents do is start changing their their taste buds, um, you know, slowly. You don't say to them, we're changing... The way we eat in this family Well, they're not going to come to the do... party, are they?
1: <laughs> we they can say that, that till the cows come home. It doesn't mean it's... <laughs> they're going to listen.
2: Spot on, we can. And they definitely don't listen. So you do it slowly but surely. And then over time, they start shifting. The one rule that I, that I stick with in our family, we don't eat any chocolate after 4 p.m. Okay. And that's the rule that we stick with. And it's really, really good chocolate. But we don't eat it after 4 p.m not necessarily because it contains even natural sugar mm-hmm. because it contains theobromine and theobromine is a heart stimulant and mm-hmm. that will stop children from falling asleep late in the day. If it's full of magnesium, the theobromine will override that. Okay. So that is a good rule to have. But as far as sugar goes, any processed sugar will cause blood glucose fluctuations. And those blood glucose fluctuations do a number of negative things in the body. One of the things they do, they actually cause a stress response when they dip. Mm-hmm. Which then causes adrenaline release, and the other thing that they do they stop the brain from um, managing emotion effectively, so that is a good reason to shift children from a from a processed sugar consumption to natural sugar just to keep blood glucose
1: stable mm, yeah, yeah, no it's um it's crazy as a mum, and this is not coming from a judgmental place at all, but uh I I'm very passionate about it because, you know, you go away and you see all of the foods and everything that are marketed out there to little ones and how much sugar is in them. And, you know, it's, it's through no fault of parents. Like, I think a lot of people are unaware of just how much sugar are in all of the stuff that's marketed as health foods even. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite scary, isn't it? And like you're saying, it, it does really affect the, their development and, and microbiome hey, look, and all it's, of that. It's really
2: scary. It's got a very long-reaching effect because their taste buds are developed and then their brain function is developed and so is their, you know, their body physiology. So it's a long, long-reaching effect. And one of the reasons mothers choose processed foods over more wholesome foods is because they're exhausted. You know, they're tired. They don't want to go and stand in the kitchen in, in the way they perceive, you know, healthy food to, to need lots of time and preparation. And that was one of the motivators for putting my recipe book together because I know that mothers are tired. I've been a mother, I've, you know, a hands-on mother. My children are now older, but I spent time trying to figure out how to make it really simpler and how mm. to make it you still keep the food tasting delicious and keep them coming back for more, but make sure that I didn't have to spend my life in the kitchen. So that leads me on to my books. You know, I wrote my first book, which is a sciencey book about the brain and brain function. And then I decided to write a recipe book to be able to help mothers and anybody who wants to feed their brain well with delicious and simple recipes. So I basically took the science and put it in the kitchen for people. And I know that my books have been very useful to many, many people and mothers too, because they realize all the long-term effects that they can can influence when they start feeding their children well. So as I mentioned before we started the recording my publisher has given me permission to share with you a special link so any viewers or listeners can buy my sciencey book and then get the recipe book for free and that's, yeah, that's a really a great offer to get them both and to, to start working with them.
1: Thank you so much and where can our listeners find you sorry? If
2: they can find me on Instagram under lighter, brighter, you, Mm -hmm. and I put a lot of posts up related to really good and simple to make recipes firstly. And I also put up a lot of information about the brain and the gut in terms of, of, of health. And they can find me on Facebook as well. I've just started a Facebook group for women who feel overwhelmed, stressed, and exhausted. So if they feel an affinity with that feeling and they want to create calm and more energy and not feeling overwhelmed anymore, then they can join me there with pleasure. And I'm also on LinkedIn. If there are any woman involved in business and they want to follow my posts there, they can do that as well. So right. I'm kind of like spreading a number of places. Um, try not being a social media puppet, but being able to provide good value for people, you know, without only posting about cats and puppies and, whatever people post (laughs) to try and attract attention, trying to offer really good value.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And I will pop links to all of those in my show notes as well, so that uh, our listeners can find you nice and easily. Well, thank you so much for jumping on today, Delia. I really, really appreciate it. And um, you've given us a lot of food for thought. And I can't wait to get my hands on your recipe book.
2: I'm sure that you'll enjoy it. One of the, top recipes that I actually made was a mistake and it only requires two ingredients and it tastes like fudge and I made it when my daughter was really little and it's a really lovely yummy product and it helps wean kids off that really highly processed sugary taste so okay wonderful I can't wait to check
1: it out
2: and people can you know you will enjoy it and people can also email me if they've got questions but my social media you know, presence, I try and give a lot of value in, in those areas. And of course, in my books. And it was a delight to chat to you, Tony, thank you. And you're doing such important work. Really laying the foundation for, for future health is priceless.
0: Thank you, I appreciate that. How you doing out there, nerds? You still with me? <laughs> How good is that? Isn't she incredible? There was a fair few things dropped in there that I didn't know about. So I'm incredibly grateful for Delia for jumping on. As always, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, whatever it is that you were doing just one of those quick things will help uh, this podcast to get out there and to be heard by others. I would appreciate it. Also, just letting you all know that my next eight week challenge is coming up very soon working madly on getting my website finished so that I can have somewhere for you all to go to check out all the amazing information on there. Um, If you would like to have a chat with me, you can jump on the link in either my bio and Instagram, which is that underscore gut underscore feeling underscore AU, or on Facebook, which is that gut feeling AU. You'll find me, hit the links up, and there's a place that you can go in there to book an appointment we can have a free consultation just see if i'm the right person to support you as you can tell by these podcasts i talk to a range of different health professionals so if i can't help you i promise you i will know someone that will this is your gut health bestie signing out stay awesome keep trusting that gut feeling of yours and remember let's keep on doing it for the kids Until next time, views and opinions expressed by the host and guests of that gut feeling doing it for the kids podcast series are for published entertainment purposes only and are not intended as a diagnosis treatment or as a substitute for professional medical advice and treatment. Please consult a physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns, reproduction, copying or redistribution of the doing it for the kids podcast without the express written consent of that gut feeling is prohibited.